Hey there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Classic Gaming Brothers. I'm Seth. And I'm Zach. And we are the Classic Gaming Brothers. We are. We are. We and are. I just want to say thank you to all of those who joined us when we did our 24-hour live stream. Uh, we had a lot of people come and visit for uh, a long time, and we had a lot of people come and visit for just a moment. We appreciate you all. Uh, thank you for anyone who stayed up late with us or got up early. And thanks to our dad for hanging out with us and beating us up with his E-Honda uh, abilities. Yeah, he's really good at Street Fighter. Or we're just really bad at Street Fighter, and he's mediocre. Anyway, so Zach, what have you been uh, playing recently? Seth, recently I've been playing Black Mesa Blue Shift which is a mod created by the HECU Collective. Um, They're a modding group. And uh, Black Mesa Blue Shift is a mod that looks to recreate the 2001 Half-Life expansion pack Blue Shift in the Black Mesa game. Um, So taking the fairly short uh, expansion pack of Blue Shift and converting it over to the aesthetic that you'd expect from uh, the Crowbar Collective's Black Mesa, um, such as improving AI, fixing up uh, just the general aesthetic. It's obviously going to be in source, so it's going to be a much better engine, uh, making other just general improvements. And so far, uh, it's a work in progress mod. They've only done the first three chapters. So it has the opening sequence where you are on the uh, tram getting to your station. It has the uh, sequence where Barney Calhoun uh, is getting like his equipment and being sent to his first task. And then it has just after the resonance cascade where everything has kind of gone to hell. And uh, so far, the work that they have done is really impressive, and I really like every moment that I played. I'm kind of bummed that it's currently only three chapters. Uh, Blue Shift is a very short campaign, so hopefully they'll be able to kind of get it all completed and finished. But I'm pretty sure it's still being worked on, because I think chapter three came out earlier, like, the last few months. So it's not like a project that's been dead in the water sort of deal. For those who don't know, Blue Shift is a uh, short expansion pack that was kind of put together last minute by Gearbox uh, as part of a, originally they were intending to include it in the Dreamcast version of Half-Life and then the Dreamcast version got canceled. So they kind of had to do their own thing with it. And uh, it is uh, a full storyline of you playing as Barney Calhoun, who is a security guard guard at Black Mesa and is the guard that Gordon Freeman goes past who is trying to get into the door. So when you're playing Half-Life for the first time and you're playing as Gordon Freeman, you're on the tram, you see a security guard banging on a door and he's like stuck um, and he can't get in. That's Barney. Uh, Barney later shows up in Half-Life 2 and he says, how about that beer I owed you? Because it's implied that he knew Gordon at Black Mesa and owes him alcohol, uh, which they reference in the Blue Shift mod. Uh, if you talk to security guards, sometimes they'll say, hey, aren't you the guy that owes Gordon Freeman a beer? Uh, which is a fun little little wink and a nod. And also there are other fun little things that they've added in to make the game feel a bit more like Black Mesa uh, in terms of uh, creating a a world that feels lived in that you're walking around. One of my favorite things you can do is there's a scientist in the beginning of the game that is sitting on a laptop. You can walk up to them and you can slam their laptop shut in their face. (laughs) There's also like another detail they added was an explanation for why Barney is stuck on like that weird area and is unable to get into the, the door. In the or actual blue shift game they never explain it the tram drops you off and then goes away and then the door doesn't open in the blue shift mod 
Uh, they explained that as Barney is traveling to his station, he gets routed to an alternate entrance because of a problem on the track. So he like enters an area and then all of a sudden the track fails and they're like, you hear a security guard be like, ah, what happened? All right, I'm going to route you to uh, the uh, emergency entrance over on this level. And when you get there, that's why you can't get in because your passcode doesn't work because you're not usually supposed to be there Uh, but it does mean that you get to go through the dormitories briefly and you see gordon freeman waiting for the train (laughs) so it's a it's a good it's a nice little uh little mod i'm glad that they put it together i'm kind of excited to see what else is to come out of it i think blue shift is a fairly underrated dlc for half-life it doesn't really do much to half-life that makes it at all interesting see there are two dlcs for half-life that were available or expansion packs rather blue shift and opposing force opposing force allows you to play as a soldier and you get all new weapons blue shift allows you to play as barney and you get less weapons (laughs) so uh, i'm excited to see what they can do with it do you think they're going to do opposing force i hope so they've been working on a couple other various projects at the same time so it looks like they're trying to pour over older mods that they used to make for the gold source engine so they they are also working on something called azure sheep which is a originally was a half-life one mod and now they're reincorporating it into black mesa and they're working on another mod that was a half-life one mod and again they're reincorporating it into black mesa so it looks like they're just kind of going back through a catalog of stuff that they previously worked on while also working on blue shift so i hope that they finish blue shift and maybe give us opposing force do you know what um would be really cool if they made a multiplayer game uh where they made half-life co-op oh there there is a half-life co-op no 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 but you actually all play individual games that are in the same game instance so one person plays as barney and plays through the events of blue shift one person plays as the soldier and opposing force whatever adrian shepherd adrian shepherd not to be confused with shepherd who we'll talk about later on in this episode and gordon freeman one person plays as gordon freeman and they all have to go to work at the same time and then do their own well games. adrian shepherd yeah adrian shepherd gets he's a soldier so he just he he comes to he comes to work for a big reason and that's the resonance cascade so right. it'll be very boring for one person who has to start the game a little later than everyone else no but you know what you could play you could build out like a little pre-game for adrian shepherd of him doing <laughs> just, boring just stuff like sitting at a barracks yeah so he's at a barracks hanging out maybe he has to go to the mess hall like eat some food yeah just play do sudoku some, do, go to the gym do some crunches then you have to run to wherever you go to to get your weapons ooh, to get ooh, to the ooh. and a <laughs> wait i have uh, i know how to make this game even better so a fourth person plays as g-man and has to run around to get to locations where he's just standing in a corner and he has to run to the next location and get there in time so it's got to be a, a what is it they do a lot of the atypical stuff now so it's like one verse four or whatever so the g-man can be the he can be the scary monster yeah he smacks you with his briefcase yeah seth what about you what have you been playing so i've been playing pentiment uh which was released by obsidian on november 15th of this year or well 2022 in case you're listening to this episode next year it's a pretty unique game uh it is a adventure game which i've been playing a lot of i've been playing a lot of adventure games and i assume everyone just thinks that i only play adventure games which is partly true however the artwork is pretty unique you actually you have to put yourself back into the middle ages and in the middle ages they would do these uh illuminated manuscripts and what an illuminated manuscript was was a manuscript or a book that was illuminated or 
had doodles on it. They had pictures and generally um, had very nice um, etchings. Uh, the illumination was done through uh, rare and precious metals that were inlaid into the book. And it was an art form that is relatively out of practice. I don't think they, there. I'm sure there's people out there that still illuminate stuff, but it's not something that happens very often. But it was something they did in the Middle Ages because what else would they be doing? No, and it was primarily something that like monks did with the Bible. The Bible was probably illuminated a lot. Anyway, it was a skill and an art. And in Pentiment, uh, you play in an illuminated book. So the game starts off with an illuminated book and you play as this guy named Andres, uh, Andres Maller, and you're an artist and you get to kind of determine like who you are as you uh, play through the game, like where you came from and like what you were doing before you came here. But you're just like out in the uh, Bavarian Alps and you tend to get mixed up into different stuff. Regrettably, I've only played a very little bit of this game. I am looking forward to stopping recording with Zach so I can play more of this game. So I've only, I've only played a little bit under under an hour or so, but it was, from what I understand, Josh Sawyer over at Obsidian uh, wanted to make this game for a very long time. Um, like before he joined Obsidian a long time, and he ended up apparently getting the ability to do so. And uh, is the game director and a few other role story designer um, throughout for the whole game. And it's definitely something where I guarantee you he was hired. Like when the acquisition of Microsoft came, Josh Sawyer, who's a, a pretty weed uh, personality and person at Obsidian, probably was like, if you hire me, I need to have like creative freedom to make this game um, and give me all of the money to do so because it's pretty hilarious. I really hope they make more games like this, not necessarily because I've only played a little bit of it and I'm Obsidian fanboy. I think games like this are important because games like this are, I, there's not a game that I know of that's like this. That's like a serious adventure game with the same art style. There are some games that have similar art style that are funny, kind of Monty Python-esque type of games, but like this game is not really trying to be that funny that I've seen. It's also not a role-playing game. It is an adventure game, unlike the game that we'll talk about in just a bit, which is a role-playing game. Today's episode, we're going to be talking about another Bioware game, which we've talked about a few, and we've talked about Bioware, but we really haven't talked about Mass Effect yet, uh, nor have we talked about Dragon Age Origins, but we'll get to Dragon Age eventually. Now, there's a couple of reasons that we want to talk about Mass Effect, and one of the main reasons, though, is because of the lore. Mass Effect, like Fallout and various other games, have a deep-seated lore, and we can't do an episode where we talk solely about the culture of the Hanar without first talking about the game itself. So in order to get more lore episodes, we need to talk about more games with deep lore, and Mass Effect is one of those games. Now you're asking, is Mass Effect even a classic video game? Well, the first one was released in 2007, so to my brain, no, it's not. But to the rule that a game was released over 10 years ago is a classic game, then yes, unfortunately it does fall into the bucket. I was actually thinking about this while writing the notes. Mass Effect 3 would go on to be released in 2017. 12, which we'll talk about later on. And when we started this podcast, it would not have fallen into the classic video game, but now has fallen into the classic video game definition of being over 10 years old. 
we're going to spend this episode primarily concentrating on the original Mass Effect and not its arguably better sequel, which I just, well, its middle sequel, which is arguably the best. Kind of like Empire Strikes. Mass Effect is a lot like Star Wars in that A New Hope was really good because it was groundbreaking. Empire Strikes Back was really good because it was the best and the return of the jedi just couldn't hold up to empire strikes back yeah and when they tried to do anything else with it it failed miserably that's true too that's true too yeah mass effect the original hereby we'll refer to as just mass effect had for me in a moment where i was like wow this is game is pretty much everything i want so before we go into the history proper, as it were, we could talk about some memories. Uh, Zach, do you want to go over your memories with uh, Mass Effect? Uh, I don't have a lot of memories with Mass Effect because I didn't really grow up playing Mass Effect. Also, I didn't actually play Mass Effect for the first time until I was in college. Me too. Uh, and my friend gifted me a copy uh, yes but when you were in college was different than when i was in college i was gifted mass effect from a friend of mine who really likes mass effect he's actually the artist for our show who designed our um like everything and that's why he's my favorite brother yeah he's your favorite brother he gave me all three copies of the mass effect for origin so i have mass effect one two and three and i played through a bit of one and i ended up getting stuck somewhere and i just never revisited it it also didn't run it ran okay on my computer like it didn't have issues in performance it just it didn't look very nice um so not that i usually have problems with games that are a little older or a little dated in their aesthetic but i think i was more excited to play mass effect 2 uh and i was less excited to play mass effect 1 mostly because i was told by not only my brother but also my friend how good mass effect 2 was so i really wanted to get through mass effect 1 so i could play mass effect 2 and uh, i felt a little overwhelmed by mass effect 1 to the point where I, I to this day have not finished it but i do own a copy of the legendary collection so i can always revisit it and probably enjoy it a bit more now that it's been uh updated for a, a modern era i also did play a bit of mass effect 3 oddly enough but only the multiplayer because my friend really liked playing the multiplayer mm. and he had no one else to play it with so i think that's why he bought me mass effect <laughs> so that someone would play the multiplayer with him uh so i uh, have played the multiplayer a good chunk of the multiplayer mass effect 3 and i have not played the storyline the mass effect 3 multiplayer was phenomenal Actually, a fun fact about Mass Effect 3 multiplayer is I created a friendship through it. I was really into the multiplayer scene when it came out, and I played it a lot. And I we and you need four people when you play that game. So we, my me and my friend, we would always team up with one of our friends, and they had a friend that would join us, who I ended up becoming really good friends with. And I didn't know them outside of the Mass Effect multiplayer, but we became instant friends when we both decided to play as Krogans in bright pink and purple armor because that's how you play as a Krogan. Now, I have a I have a core memory of Mass Effect 1 and I th I think I actually got you the legendary edition. I so I've I before we get on and I want to talk about Mass Effect 1 and and the the toughness to get around it. So here's the deal. From somebody who has just recently put in 130 hours into Mass Effect like as in the last couple of months and have probably beaten the game all three games. I have beaten at least twice 
each and probably beaten Mass Effect 1 three times. I think I've beaten, I arguably played a lot of Mass Effect. First off, yes, the Mako parts in the Mass Effect world really are really, really bad. I recommend looking up what you need. If you want it, if you're the kind of person like me and you want to just like maximize your experience or just look for all the things that carry over to Mass Effect 2 and just do those things and don't worry about any of the other side missions. You can ignore a majority of the Mako planets. Second, if you want to play Mass Effect 2, just play Mass Effect 2. I there's there's nothing stopping you from playing Mass Effect 2 and arguably enjoying the better game beyond the build-up, right? Part of it is the build-up, but Mass Effect 2 allows you to customize your your character in the beginning, and you can also just get a save game editor, boot up Mass Effect 1, and build up whatever your save game you want, and edit it up, and then inject it into the second one. But, I am like you, and I like playing games from number 1 to whatever. Like, I like yeah. playing games in order. If possible, and if applicable. Like, if a game doesn't... Like, looking at Final Fantasy, you do not need to play Final fantasy one through seven right like in a row but mass effect one through three is a trilogy <laughs> it is a trilogy and it's a great trilogy and mass effect 2 is is probably like the swan song of it it's worth it though i still 100 percent worth it i still get mad at people who don't don't want to play it not necessarily not that you don't want to play like mass effect i just know somebody who's only played mass effect one and refused to play mass effect two and i was really mad now my core memory that I, I associate with Mass Effect is actually in the very beginning of the game, you go into the Elcor and the Volus diplomatic office in the embassy on the Citadel. Uh, the Elcor are a great alien race. They kind of look like, they look like giant elephants and they talk like Eeyore. And the Elcor actually communicate primarily through pheromones that humans and other races aren't able to pick up on. So the Elcors always have to uh, say what their emotional state is. So they'll say like, happy greeting and then they'll proceed to talk or they'll say like sad goodbye or something like or sad departure it's pretty funny whenever they they kind of subtext their their chat it's very similar to how hk47 actually talks which you guys will find out later why that is and then there's the volus who are these creatures that live in little bio suits and they kind of look like little mole men and they're all very grouchy and talk with like kissing noises Anyway, they have their own office. They actually share an office, which is a fun story in its own right, because essentially the Vols and the Elcor aren't important enough to become being able to become part of the council races. So they are relegated to kind of like, here, you get this office, but since you're not even important enough to get your own office, you could share this office. I walked in into the embassy office. Now, this is after, this is not the very, very beginning of the game. So they've already done the tutorial section, which is the entire planet. I've already done that. I'm on this Citadel. I'm starting to explore the Citadel. And I walk in and I realize in that moment how impressive this world was and how big this world was. Just by talking, these two creatures showed how much lore that they really shoved into this game and how much this game really changed the RPGs that were released, even shortly before Mass Effect. Mass Effect was also one of the first RPGs 
where everyone talked. Every single person had dialogue, including the main character, which not many characters talked previously. They were usually very silent. Uh, you picked options, like your character spoke, but they didn't say anything. And Mass Effect, Shepard says everything. And unlike Fallout, Shepard usually says what you think he's going to say. <laughs> unlike uh, Fallout 4, where sometimes it's a bit of a guess. One of the other things that I noticed is that within the actual dialogues, Shepard will do things, which is pretty cool. Um, there was another scene where Shepard pulls his gun out on people and during the dialogue, and I thought that was, I like, always viewed dialogues as like a static conversation until Mass Effect, where Shepard's like running around in the dialogue. I was like, I'm still having a conversation and I just pulled my gun out. It was just like some of the best experience and really groundbreaking experience for me, which I think I also, to Zach's point, I think I benefit from playing the game when it came out in 2007. I think because I played the game so early, I was able to really enjoy the changes that they did for Mass Effect 1. If, it, if I started playing the series later, maybe I would be in the same boat where I would just want to play whatever the better version of the game is. Now, to get into the history of Mass Effect, like as Seth mentioned, we talked about Bioware before. We did kind of an in-depth breakdown of Bioware. We also talked about Next to the Old Republic. And Baldur's Gate. But uh, kind of a place said everyone in 2004 bioware had just released knights of the old republic for microsoft windows and they were ready to move on to their next project casey hudson uh was the project director for kotor and he was looking to direct a next project the xbox was actually headed at the time headed towards end of life and the 360 was on its way out so the bioware team decided that the next project that they were going to work on would be for the 360 since they could uh, make something even more groundbreaking using all the new tools that were available bioware would go on to start the pre-production work in the same year on what would become mass effect 130 people would go on to help build the world we know as mass effect and Mass Effect was always designed to be a trilogy. They wanted the first game to just be the first chapter in a grand story, as they knew that storytelling was really their strong suit. Uh, but they wanted to not only have an amazing story, but also an amazing story that was all within their own intellectual property, something that they didn't have to rely on people like uh, Wizards of the Coast or LucasArts to um, kind of give the push when, <laughs> when, it, when it came to actually production. Because uh, in reality, when it comes to Bioware, the, the important part about having your own IP in any company's sake is you can set your own goals. So if you have, let's say, a game coming out and LucasArts wants you to make that game, they're going to tell you when the game should come out. Versus when Bioware wants to make their own game, they can decide when that game gets to come out. Um, though obviously they have to have some form of deadline. The deadline doesn't have to be as strict as like something that maybe like to tie into a movie or something like that. I and they maintained um, more creative control. If they own the intellectual property, they ultimately own what it looks like, where if they did a project for Star Wars or uh, Wizards, they would have to send stuff to the licensor to get approval of what, you know, like this person, does this person look like a Jedi enough for them? And, you know, depending on how much of a PIA the licensor is, they could really be like, no, that doesn't work. No, that doesn't work. And, and really bog down creativity. So most of their previous games, um, with the exception of Jade Empire and Shattered Steel, were licensed properties. Uh, so taking their storytelling and bringing it into a world they owned would really not only allow an experience that was unique to them, but also would make sure they didn't have to pay the licensor or 
run things for approvals. In fact, if the series became popular enough, they could be the licensor. Because, let's say, down the line, someone wanted to make a, for example, Mass Effect animated series. Or a Mass Effect book series. Guess who has to pay Mass Effect for that license? Whoever is making the product. They would go on, now the team would go on to use the Unreal Engine 3 as their game engine, but they would also layer in additional technology on top of the game engine that would include more advanced digital actors, space exploration, and squad combat, uh, which were all features that were not native to Unreal Engine 3. Mass Effect would go on to being one of the most intensive programming projects ever at that time, and the game would go on to have a a four-year development cycle, uh, which based on the product and and based on the game, would probably be uh would, would probably be arguably a, a pretty good choice and it, it was a quick timeline you know, it's a quick timeline for a pretty good game most of that time however was implementing the technologies that they were unique to unreal engine 3 and likely trying to make sure that they ran within the framework of unreal engine 3 because you can't right. just kind of like drop in code and be like all right go <laughs> <laughs> i made this really complex thing oh it crashes now in order to be able to create the story that uh he wanted to tell casey and the bioware team pivoted from the decision to make a blank slate protagonist like almost every other rpg prior arguably even revan was a blank slate protagonist (laughs) i think that's the entire story of knights of the old republic is that you are a blank slate protagonist and instead wanted the players to help craft the central character, but ultimately have that character built around the same vision. It's hard to explain, but everyone has their own Shepard who's played through Mass Effect. In fact, many people have multiple Shepherds that are all their own. Like, they have multiple visions of the Shepherd, but they're all still Shepherd, ultimately. Whether Shepherd goes Paragon or Renegade, whether Shepherd is male or female, whether whatever skin color or hair color or eye color combination you want to make, that Shepherd is uniquely yours, but that Shepherd is also uniquely Bioware's. As you kind of partner with the game to create this story together versus designing a a blank character who just goes through dialogue choices which nothing against those other rpgs like i love all rpgs but i just thought bioware was very unique with this at the time now in be creating this type of character in partnership with the player allowed bioware to really create an experience that was uniquely theirs and brought a new level of cinematic power to the game though as always choices and consequences were always the top priority and a branching story was essential to the bioware and to bioware games in general and this is where bioware first implemented their dialogue wheel which they created for mass effect because of the amount of conversation that you can have and you have like conversation options you have sub options in the conversations you have like sub sub options sometimes there is a lot of things that you can say in mass effect and along with the technology they developed for the digital actors allowed characters to not only speak verbally but allow characters to speak non-verbally and use cues such as facial expressions in dialogue such as rolling their eyes or body movement such as like shrugging or like being dejected they could express that with the characters the 3d actor that is there and there there i mean there were some there were some 
bugginess. I'm Bioware. I, they don't, it's not like a Mass Effect is not, I'm not going to say perfect, perfect. They did have some weird eye issues. And I think Andromeda still had some weird eye. Mass Effect, Bioware and the Mass Effect games have issues doing human eyes. <laughs> There's just been like always just a little weird eyes. Ashley's eyes in the first game were kind of weird. And the writer's eyes and Andromeda. See, I, I still know the character's name <laughs> was, was, was kind of weird. So that was the a bit of aspect in regards to kind of the role-playing part of the game. Dialogues, choices, and all that. The game was going to be an action role-playing game versus just a role-playing game. Combat and shooting was going to be a central game mechanic to the game, so it had to be fun. And the combat in Mass Effect was an evolution of the vague turn-based combat that Knights of the Old Republic had into a third-person, over-the-shoulder shooter. There was a simplified tactical system that was implemented to still provide some role-playing elements to the game, but you didn't have to, for example, queue up all of your attacks for all of your squad members <laughs> in a pause menu. It was just, I feel, like just enough micromanagement and many games will go on to mimic the way that mass effect implemented their combat and i'm sure mass effect also stole some of the ways that they you know they were influenced as well art imitates art and all that and also bioware really wanted to make their game world feel immense exploration was another pillar of their game and beyond building many handcrafted worlds which are all the worlds that you visit throughout the story they also created numerous amount of planets that could be explored that provide filler content where you can drive around the m35 mako or be really mad that you're driving around the M35 Mako. It's arguably the part that everyone hates the most about Mass Effect 1 and is actually abandoned in the sequel because they listened to their fans and said, this is going away. They would go on to lean heavily on early games such as Starflight and Star Control and Star Control 2, not only for influencing how to explore the galaxy, but also the actual writing and character and alien design. Well, Drew Capetian of HK4, 47 fame if you remember our Knights of the Old Republic episode is back and in, instead of being a senior writer as he was for Knights of the Old Republic he was the lead writer now an interesting way that Drew uh, and Bioware organized everything was that each of the main planets in the game would have a main writer assigned to that planet however all the writers involved in production had to read and review everyone else's work and provide feedback. Uh, this was just common practice in all aspects of Bioware. And Drew's main job was making sure all the writers have the same voice and consistency. Because if everyone had a different voice and different consistency, the game would have been very bad. <laughs> While the developers and programmers were spending their years developing new technology, Drew and his writers were spending their years writing. In fact, they would go on to have over 400,000 words in terms of writing, and over 20,000 pieces of spoken dialogue, which according to Drew was about 20 movies or four to five full-length novels. It's a lot of writing in three years. Now, Jack Wall, who worked on Jade Empire, was brought on to compose the music. He, along with Sam Hollick, Richard Jacques, and David Cates, would score 110 minutes of music, uh, which includes the in-game and cinematic music. They would go on to accomplish Wall's vision of marrying the electronic instrument palette of the late 1970s and early 80s with organic elements. Altogether, the package was efficiently and effectively assembled and released in 2007 for the Xbox 360, PlayStation 3, and Windows. Well, I was reading something about how Jack Wall and team 
assembled the music and I'm not a musician, but they assembled it, all the music in stems, which is different than tracks. Stems are like collections of, you bounce the instruments together. So like you have all your pianos in one, because it's all orchestral music, right? But then they stem it out. So there's like piano, guitar, harps, whatever, all's broken out into different groups. All 110 minutes was done this way so that they could throughout the game as they were composing like as they were laying in the composition to the game they could bring in and out different sections of the music for making more or less changing the impact of the music which i thought was really cool and how they did that but i'm not a musician so i'm sure i'm saying everything wrong now mass effect is a action role-playing game this means you can do role-playing and action and sometimes those occur simultaneously very infrequently though an action role-playing game is different than something like a tactical role-playing game or a turn-based role-playing game in an action role-playing game the action is typically in real time though there may be ways to pause or slow down combat and better to strategize this comes into play a bit in mass effect specifically when you go into the context wheel otherwise the game plays in real time with combat occurring in a relatively quick pace as the game is a role-playing game as well you must go on various quests and meetings a wide variety of characters and go through 20,000 lines of dialogue <laughs> there's a lot of talking in the game and a lot of talking about quote-unquote reapers <laughs> i actually my favorite t-shirt i own is the Turian Counselor, he's quoting his fingers and he goes, he's talking about the threat of the Reapers. Now, in the game, you play as Commander Shepard, uh, who Zack always wants to call Adrian Shepard, who is the main character, as we spoke earlier in Half-Life's Opposing Forces. Unlike in Half-Life, Commander Shepard can not only have a unique first name, but he can also be a man or a woman. You can also design Shepard to look however you would like them to look. Now, Shepard is an elite human soldier who is tasked with stopping an evil alien race called the reapers from destroying everything this is a pretty big simplification of the story uh probably a grossly oversimplification of the story um but like most role-playing games there are a lot of moving parts uh and to be honest it would probably take us a very long time to go through the story in greater detail no and go through all the different right now in the first Mass Effect, you're just going after one guy. His name is Saren. Uh, he is working for or working with a creature known as Sovereign. Sovereign may or may not be a Reaper. In the second game, you go after the Collectors. In the third game, you go after all the Reapers. Yes. Uh, but if you are interested in learning more about the various intricacies of the characters and races and politics involved in Mass Effect, let us know. Maybe we'll do a lore episode. No, we are doing a lore episode. What is important to know is that not only do you get to fight a lot of enemies, but you also get to make a lot of friends and romance people. And that's pretty cool. The game has a morality and dialogue function, as Seth alluded to earlier. At least he alluded to the dialogue function. Uh, and that's an important element in the game. Part of talking to people involves using the circular command menu called the dialogue wheel, uh, which will pop up and provide you with various options that you can choose from. This will allow your character to either be polite, thoughtful, or just a jackass. And these dialogue choices will have a major impact of how NPCs will react to you in-game, and also play into your overall morality. Uh, the morality meter is measured as paragon or renegade uh, paragon meaning that you employ things like charm or i would say less aggressive tactics while renegade is more intimidation and aggressive tactics i have some some favorite paragon and renegade moments i i think the renegade moments are more enjoyable and funny 
than the Paragon it's moments. To be, I feel like some of my favorite Renegade moments are while you're in Mass Effect, you eventually play as a Spectre, which is for the special tactics and reconnaissance units for the Citadel, and the Citadel is run by the Council. The Council occasionally likes to check in with you and see how you are doing, so you get like little hologram calls with them after every mission, and you can either recap them nicely or you can just hang up on them. <laughs> and that's the best part is just they start getting angry with you and you just go, all right, disconnect the call and you hang up and just turn around and leave them. Joker actually makes a joke about that. Joker's the pilot of the Normandy. Uh, he will go. He would go on to say something when uh, you join up with the Spectres again or there's a point, I think it's either Mass Effect 2 or Mass Effect 3 where you meet up with Joker and he's like, all right, let's call the Citadel and hang up on them. Or he's like, do you want me to call the Citadel so you can hang up on them like old times? There's also a news reporter throughout the game where you can interview with her or you can punch her in the face and you can then go on through all three mass effects punching this lady in the face and you can actually watch videos of her getting punched in the face by other people at some point in time in the second game as we alluded to there is a lot of mass effect lore that is out there so we will be doing an episode on the various aliens and various different things within the the series so tune in for an episode like that we just wanted to talk about the game first uh now how well did it do mass effect did really well when it was released in 2007 it quickly made its way to the top of the sales chart sold upwards of 473,000 copies uh on on day one it would then it would go on to sell over a million copies worldwide within the first few weeks of sales so yeah mass effect sells pretty good uh it was critically acclaimed with publications at the time like Eurogamer giving it an 8 out of 10 game Pro giving it four and four point seven five out of five, and GameSpy giving it five stars. IGN giving the PC version a nine point two out of ten. Mass Effect would go on to win the two thousand seven Spike Video Game Awards Best RPG. It also won the Role Playing Game of the Year at the Interactive Achievement Awards the best RPG at the 2007 IGN award and the New York times ranked it as the game of the year in 2007, which coming out in November is pretty good. That's why those sleep, these, those sleeper hits coming out in November, December, just crushing game of the year and arguably is well-deserved. Uh, I am 100% a Mass Effect fanboy. I, I own numerous merchandise by them. I love it. So I will always have high praise for it. However, the game wasn't without controversy on release. Their romantic and sexual content at the time caught the eye of some conservative news outlets and bloggers. One blogger falsely stated that you could have sex with pretty much anything you wanted to, which is false. That's Dragon Age 2. In Mass Effect, you can only have sex with either Liara if you are male or female, Caden, if you are female, Ashley, if you are male, and I think that's it, because I think Liara is your, Liara is the male-female option, and then Caden and Ashley are the male-female options, and then you, like, you can't have romance with Rex, unfortunately. <laughs> that's the worst part of Mass Effect, to be honest. <laughs> oh, I forgot. You can romance Garrus as you're a female. Whew. Do not want to forget about Garrus. Just trying to remember if the romance Garrus. I'm pretty sure romancing Garrus is available in Mass Effect 1. You can't romance Tally in Mass Effect 1. You can only romance Tally starting Mass Effect 2. So the true Paragon playthrough, even though I am playing a Liara run right now, the true Paragon playthrough is romancing Ashley in the first game and having her die, <laughs> and then romancing Tally and all the rest. <laughs> because then your true 
monogamous <laughs> and just happen to be a widow. Because if you have multiple romance encounters go on, they do get into fights. Though, So the blogger falsely stating that you can have sex with pretty much anything you wanted to was false. And the anti-video game campaigner Jack Thompson called the blogger out as being absolutely ridiculous. Jack Thompson, who is the reason we have ESRB, said that this guy was just making making stuff up. Like Jack Thompson was one of the people that was accusing Night Trap of being the worst game of all time. And he was like, no, this guy's full of crap. Maybe he really liked Mass Effect. Fox News' Martha McCallum also criticized the game's depiction of sexual content. I think this is primarily because a lot of their marketing revolved around the Asari race. There are three council races. Before we go on to um, the finale and we talk about the legacy of Mass Effect, there are three council races within Mass Effect. Uh, the Solarians, the Turians, and the... Asari. The Turians are these like uh, lizard looking creatures with like armored plates. Uh, the Solarians are these lizard looking creatures with no armor plates. <laughs> but they're, they're like more like uh, E.T. ish looking creatures, that, but they're they're tall and gangly. I have um I have a picture of Morden that hangs in my Morden Solus that hangs in my room. And then finally, the Asari is a race of all women. And that's they use the Asari race primarily a lot in there, and they're all attractive women. Um and they they use the Asari race primarily in a lot of their marketing material. Uh, so that's probably why a lot of people thought that there was going to be a lot of alien sex in the game because there was an entire race made of females. Um, interestingly enough, there's a lot that goes on with the Asari culture because they always, they need to ideally mate with races outside of their own race, but then they make more Asari, which is fun. But we, once again, we will, uh, just teasing a future uh, races episode here for Mass Effect. Yeah, now, despite the minor controversy, the the success of the game did not stop the sequels. A Mass Effect 2 would release in 2011, and as Seth would include in our notes, it would be the most amazing of the Mass Effects ever. Uh, Mass Effect 3 would release in 2012, and would go on to be a, a pretty good Mass Effect game, but have a really controversial ending that required an entire patch to fix. All three of these games would be bundled together in the Mass Effect Legendary Collection in 2021. There was also a spin-off game called Mass Effect Andromeda, which came out in 2017. This has made a lot of people very angry and has widely been regarded as a bad move <laughs> and that's mass effect we forgot one we don't want to forget that there was a mobile game that was released in 2009 called mass effect galaxy it was developed by bioware published by electronic arts and you follow former system alliance soldier jacob taylor as you work for miranda lawson and work foil a terrorist conspiracy against the Citadel console. It is part of the multimedia push for Mass Effect 2. There was also a uh, third-person shooter on iOS called Infiltrator, which came out in 2012. I haven't played Mass Effect Galaxy, and um, I don't think I'm missing much. But maybe I will play it. Man, I just was just thinking, we... There's so much that we haven't even uncovered with Mass Effect. We just talked about the game being developed. There's things like we haven't even I mean, gone That's usually into like, how our episode does. Well, I know, I know that's how our episodes go, but like we didn't even talk about what Mass Effects were. Really just really just looking for getting a lore episode out there. <laughs> we will do a lore episode. That is a classic gaming promise. Now, we're going to get into our retro rewind. Uh so Seth had me play Streets of Rage 2. Uh, this is a side-scrolling beat-em-up developed and published by our friends over at Sega. In the game, you get to choose from either four characters, and you go down the streets, and you cause some rage. 
Uh, you have to fight off various enemies who like to carry around knives and lead pipes. I played as Axel Stone uh, because he has the best name. And also he seemed to be pretty much the best, like most rounded character of the bunch. It's a very 90s game. Uh, first of all, the main character's name is Axel Stone, which is just, that's just 90s right there but it's also a 90s game in the sense that it, it's trying to make you feel like it's an 80s game <laughs> in that everything is very 80s themed so like it's a lot of neon people got boom boxes the fashion's still kind of like 80s vibe it's it's just it's got that it's got that good good early 1990s flair to it i love streets of rage too i think it's a fantastic game and i have always had a good time playing it um so honestly does it hold up absolutely of course it holds up frankly i think everyone should play streets of rage uh probably pick up the new one too streets of rage 4 because that's supposed to be really good seth next week i want you to play a real-time strategy game for the sega genesis i want you to play dune battle for arrakis Okie dokie. A real-time strategy game for the Sega Genesis sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. Zach had me play Donkey Kong Country for the SNES, which was released back in 1994. It's a platformer game that was developed by Rare. The game has really good graphics for being for an SNES. They have like 3D sprites uh, and like a, it's like a, it is a two-dimensional world, but the two dimensions have like a little pop-out. It feels like it's a three-dimensional world. Um, it has 40 levels to play through and you get to play as a gorilla. The affirmation mentioned donkey kong you can also play as diddy kong and you, in fact you go through as donkey kong and you find diddy kong hiding in barrels and then when you die you play as diddy kong you can also high five diddy kong if you want to play diddy kong because i think diddy kong can like jump higher and he's a little faster and he's small he's a smaller hitbox i played single player and it did i i did all right it's a fun little platformer it's very classic and when it comes to you're like when you think of a platformer game it's definitely up there in the top like i would say like top 10 platformers of that era it's not the best platformer out there but it's a solid playthrough i it holds up of course um i recommend donkey kong country for those who are looking for a, a fun light-hearted uh platformer although i think any game where you jump on your enemies uh, to defeat them is going to be light-hearted yeah just by the nature of stepping on people to kill them zach you could play the 1990 game snow bros for the sega genesis okie dokie i'll do that now this was a fun episode and we hope you had a good time our next episode will be our third year of classic gaming brothers our 156th episode which would be 52 times three three years of classic gaming brothers released every sunday for the last three years quite the achievement if i do so say so myself if you want other people to revel in this achievement you can tell them to listen to classic gaming brothers or as we used to say in our early episodes go tell three friends and you can also if you want to learn more or make sure that you're listening to all of our socials you can follow us at uh, facebook instagram and twitch which we are at classic gaming brothers on twitch we would have just played extra life so we probably won't be on it again for another mm -hmm. year but who knows and twitter which is cg brothers pod if you ever want to reach out to the show to let us know how much you love us or that you we you were so glad you got to spend the last three years learning about miscellaneous crap <laughs> then you could always send us an email to classic gaming brothers at gmail.com I think that's going to be it. Uh, Zach, am I missing anything? Don't play games like my brother. And don't play games like my brother. I've been Zach. I've been Seth. And we have been the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's, that's right. right.